A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word and that the words of Jesus have been preserved for us that we might study them, that we might open our hearts to them and that uh, your words may also study us, examine our own hearts and lead us to trust in your great love and the great forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ. And so I pray that um, as we look at this passage together, um, you would be our teacher, instruct us. Um, as we look at a, a, a difficult topic, um, I pray for those who are here um, uh, who have never faced these words before. And I pray that your spirit would just guide them and instruct them and teach them and lead us into all truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we are talking... Uh, this morning about uh, the important biblical doctrine of final judgment, final judgment, uh, which is uh, which is the doctrine that says that at the the end of history, at the end of our lives, all of us as individuals will have to stand before God and give an account for the life that we've lived in this life. Every thought, word, and deed we will have to give an account to before God. Or this is the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, 
whether good or evil. Each of us will give an account for everything that we do with our bodies. Now, um, the average person living in Bellingham, uh, to them, uh, such a belief as this sounds simply medieval, right? Um, you know, this idea that there's an angry God in heaven who's, uh, who's going to judge us and he's, you know, getting all upset about who we're sleeping with and who, you know, who we told a lie to. And that basically, um, this whole idea of a final judgment is kind of a religious relic that is kind of left over from a time when the church scared people into doing what the church, you know, so the church could control people. This was their way of controlling people, was that uh, they, they scared them that there was this judgment coming, that God was wrathful and he was angry and you better watch out. And it was basically a manipulative tool. And so most, most people, and this might be you, this might be your neighbors, this might be your family members, most, most people in our culture would think of a belief like this and say, um, we've moved beyond that. We're more enlightened now than uh, ages past. And there's no, we can't continue believing in something like this, like an angry God that's going to come and judge the world and, and you know, bring his wrath on people. And in fact, uh, last week I, w- I was having, uh, having a drink with my uh, sister. My sister lives here in town. She's uh, very close to me. My sister and I are very close, and uh, we've always been close. We have a great relationship and uh, open conversation. And you know, she had texted me. Uh, she's not a Christian, and she texted me a couple weeks ago, and she says, "We got to get together and let's talk about God." You know, an exclamation point. I want to talk about God. And so we sit down and we're talking. She's telling me. She says, "Nate, listen. I know you're a pastor, but God does not get angry. Okay, God is not a judge. Judgment." has to do with fear. And fear has nothing to do with love. And I don't, I don't think she knew that she was quoting uh, 1 John 4, which is in the Bible. There is no love in fear, but perfect love casts out fear. She got that from the Bible, so I don't think she knew that. But um, she's telling me, listen, you could, there's no way that, there, there, you know, that we're going to have to stand before God and, and give an account and that he's going to be angry at certain people. But what's interesting, and and I think she represents many people in our culture, but what's interesting, if you ask the average person in our culture also, what do you make of Jesus, though? Most people are going to say, Jesus uh, was a beacon of of love and light in the world. He cared for the poor. He uh, served the marginalized and the weak, and he welcomed them. He is a model of what humanity is at its best. All right? He's probably one of the best people who, who have ever lived in the history of the world. And yet here we have a passage that we just read from the words of, of this beacon of light, Jesus, where Jesus shows that one of the most dominant aspects of his whole worldview is that there is a coming judgment of God on the world, and each of us as individuals um, will have to give an account in it. You see what he said, verse 8, verse 28. This is, these are the words of Jesus. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So, you know, murderers and things, don't worry about them. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus, it, very, it, it, it's very clear to Jesus that there's a coming judgment and that hell is real. And this Jesus, 
who is a beacon of love, says these words to us. And listen, I believe Jesus is a beacon of love. I absolutely do. I think he's the most, I definitely think he's the most loving man who's ever lived. And it is because of his love that he tells us these things, that he warns us that we'll have to stand before God and that we need to think about this. We need to deal with this reality. People who love you tell you the truth even when it's unpleasant. And Jesus loves us, so he tells us the truth, that there is a coming judgment and we need to face it. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to answer three questions about the final judgment. And uh, how do we as modern people, how can we actually believe this? And I think we absolutely need to believe it as Christians. And these are the three questions I want to answer. First, why is final judgment so important? Second, how can we face final judgment with confidence and third, what does final judgment say about our lives now? Okay, why is it so important? How can we face it with confidence? And what does it say about our lives now? So the first thing is this. Why is final judgment so important? Well, um, the Bible tells us that God is love. God is love. And I think... Um, for many of us, when we hear that God is wrathful or God is a judge, we get the impression that there's these kind of two faces to God. You know, and sometimes he's very loving and gentle. He's forgiving your sins. And he's saying, come and welcome. Everyone's welcome. And there's other times where he says, you were breaking the rules. And he's angry. And you never really know which kind of God you're going to get. And actually, for some of you, it may have been that you grew up in the church and that was your impression of God. Is there was, there was, he's almost schizophrenic and he's changing back and forth from being loving one second. And you really, really never know who you're going to get. Or maybe you think right when you become a Christian, he's loving, come on in, welcome. And then one once you're in and on a Christian, he's full of rules and he's harsh and he's critical of you and he's um, watching everything you're doing. He's waiting to pounce on you. But the God of the Bible is not a God who's wrathful sometimes and loving sometimes. But the God of the Bible, his wrath and his love are actually one. His wrath is always rooted in love. His wrath is always an expression of his love. And so this is... Uh, and so when we answer the question, why is final judgment important? The answers to that question are always rooted in love. And I want to give two answers from, from this passage that are rooted in love. First of all, why, why is final judgment important? First of all, final judgment is important is because it demands that we love people. Final judgment is important because it is the thing that demands that we treat people in a way that is humane and decent and generous and compassionate. It, is, it demands that we love people. And you see at the end of this passage, Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And what Jesus says is that the thing that God is looking for when he judges us, the thing that he will reward is generosity, compassion, um, uh, gentleness, love, uh, giving to others. And what Jesus makes clear is that the law that, that God has established, the law that we're going to be judged against, is a law of love. Right? Jesus says, what are the two greatest commandments? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You love your creator. You love the one who gave you life. You, you are obliged to love him, and you love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the law is. This is what he's demanding of us, is that we love each other. Um, 
Now, I think for most of us, we know that there is a moral code out there. And this is true for whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. Most people know that there are certain ways that you're supposed to treat people. You know, we watch the news and something terrible happens and we say, that, that is just wrong that that happened. Or we say, that is so unfair that that happened to that weak person or this family. They're, you know, they're taken advantage of. We say that's unfair. When we say that something is wrong or something is unfair, what are we referring to? What we're all referring to, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you are referring to some universal standard, some universal law that we are all obliged to obey. And that means that we all believe that there is a law that we are accountable to and that we are accountable to each other. And if there's a law, then it's perfectly reasonable that there's a lawgiver and that there's a judge. Um, it would be very odd for all of humanity to believe that there are certain ways that we should treat one another, and yet there is never going to be an accounting of whether we did treat each other that way or not. It would be very odd if there wasn't a judgment, if we weren't going to give an account. We all walk around assuming that there's this law, but we're never going to be held accountable to it? Of course we are. This universal law um, and final judgment is the thing that demands that we love each other and treat each other well. And I'll tell you, let me give you one reason why this is really important. Um, I, I've been reading a, uh, a book by David Berlinski. David Berlinski, is a, he's a secular Jew. He's agnostic about whether he believes in God. He doesn't really know, but he, he actually just wrote a book recently that's a criticism of many of the atheist books that have come out in the last decade. He's very critical of atheism and the problems with atheism, even though he doesn't know what he believes about God. And he tells a story in there about uh, during the early stages of the Nazis' advance into Eastern Europe uh, before World War II. And uh, these uh, massive executions were happening in, in Eastern Europe. And there's a story that he tells about a man who was being forced to dig his own grave. And he was a Hasidic, uh, elderly Hasidic Jew. And he turned to the soldier, the Nazi soldier, who was making him uh, dig his own grave. And he stood up straight and he said to him, God is watching what you are doing. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, the man was shot dead. And this is what Berlinski says. What Hitler did not believe, and what Stalin did not believe, and what Mao did not believe, and what the SS did not believe, and what the Gestapo did not believe, and what the swaggering executioners, Nazi doctors, Communist Party uh, theoreticians, uh, intellectuals, and a thousand party hacks did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. We are coming out of the 20th century is a century that was full of societies that denied that there was a final judgment and that there was a God that they would have to give an account to. And that's why in the 20th century, we had more murders from atrocities, in atrocities and massacres than every other century of, of human history combined. More people were murdered. And it was because there were societies that believed there is not a God that I have to give an account to. It is this law, this judgment that demands that we love one another. So th this is, final judgment is rooted in love. But many people will say, but the reality is believing in final judgment doesn't make you loving. You know, uh, Daniel kind of brought this up in the uh, 
in the uh, confession of sin. He was talking about, you know, there can be a tendency to think that there are people who are in with God and out with God. And if you believe in a final judgment, then what you're going to do is you're going to say, well, there's certain people that God judges that he loves and he accepts and they're in with God. And then there's going to be these people that God's wrath is upon that he's angry with and they're out with God. And if you divide humanity up into the people who are in and the people who are out, you are, the people who are in are going to mistreat the people who are out. And if you believe in an angry, vengeful, wrathful God, then you're going to become a judgmental and angry uh, person as well. Well, is that true? Well, this is the second. Uh, I, I think this passage tells us something different. Jesus tells us something different. And uh, that not only, that why is final judgment important? Not only because it demands that we love one another, but also because it enables us to love one another. Final judgment is the thing that enables us to love one another. Now, um, uh, in this passage I was just reading, Jesus is sending his disciples out on this mission. And they're going to go out and he says, I want you to heal people. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to cleanse lepers. And I want you to preach the good news of the gospel. That the kingdom is coming and that people can have their sins forgiven and they can come to God. So they're doing this great humanitarian effort that they're going out to love people. But Jesus says that when you go out, you are going to be profoundly mistreated. As you go out and you try to love your neighbor, you're going to be mistreated. Look at what he says in verse 24 to his disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul. So if they said Jesus was evil, Beelzebul is a name for a devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? And he says, you're going to go out and you're going to get arrested, you're going to be interrogated, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be tortured, some of you are going to be killed. You are going to be mistreated. And um, they mistreated me. What makes you think they won't mistreat you as well? And one of the things that is essential to loving people well is to persist in loving them even when they mistreat you. How can you continue to love people when uh, you are being mistreated? And this is Jesus' answer to his disciples. Look at this carefully. How are they going to be able to continue loving and serving people when they're being mistreated? Verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. And what Jesus says is that the way that his disciples are going to be able to love other people is to know that whatever wrong happens to you, God will account for it in the end. Leave it to him to be the judge. You don't be the judge. He's the judge. And actually, this is exactly uh, the supreme example of loving while you're being mistreated is who? Jesus himself. Jesus went to the cross. He was an innocent man and he was murdered. And he died to take our sin for us. And it was this act of injustice, and yet we see that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went completely silent. He didn't even say a word. He didn't even complain. He didn't argue. He didn't fight back. How was Jesus enabled to do that? And this is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He was reviled. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges. He believed in final judgment. 
And that was the thing that enabled him to love people who were mistreating him. For him to be on the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. is because he trusted that God was a just judge. And uh, you know, another person, um, Miroslav Volf, who I've talked with you about in the past, was, is a Croatian uh, theologian. He's at Yale Divinity School. And in, in the 90s, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, which uh, was a book talking about how do Christians, what, what does Christ, the Bible have to teach us about places in the world that are war-torn with ethnic cleansing and, and tribal war, warfare? What does the Bible have to teach us about forgiveness and reconciliation? And one of the things Miroslav Volf says is, you know, if, if let's say someone from Bellingham, kind of Bellingham academic, went down into, you know, the Balkans or somewhere where there'd been, you know, mass... Uh, massacres and atrocities that happened and they went in and there was some family that had had their son murdered and you know maybe maybe this is this is a you know a western academic comes and says listen god is not a judge god loves all people god does not get angry and he is a god of peace and you tell that family that god is just a god of peace who's just had their son murdered you know what they'll say to you this is what this is what Miroslav Volf says who grew up in Croatia he grew up around ethnic cleansing he said, that family would say, fine, your God is not a judge, then I'll be the judge. I'm going to take a sword, and I'm going to go get justice. And I'm going to go exact blood. Because if your God is not going to um, uh, deal with the evil that is done, then I'll do it myself. And then the cycle of violence will just continue to turn over, over and over again. Revenge is re- turned upon revenge. And what Miroslav Volf says is the only way to respond with nonviolence to mistreatment, the only way to love people who have mistreated you, is to believe that they will be got, judged by a just God, a just and loving God and entrust ourselves to the God of his judgment. So you have to believe in final judgment. In order to love people well, you need to believe that all things will be made by right by God in the end. And this is why, you know, when you read through the Psalms, in, uh, you know, the psalmists in the Bible, they're always excited that God is a judge, and they're singing about God is a judge, and his, you know, he's going to judge the evildoers. And we read that, and we say that's so kind of odd. But the, the picture that, um, that the Bible has of a judge is not, you know, a guy with a you know, black robe and a gavel. Um, that's not the picture that the Bible has of a judge. The picture that the Bible has of a judge is more like Braveheart. You know, William Wallace going and fighting the oppressors and defending the weak. And everyone's cheering for him and loves him and adores him. And uh, that God is that kind of judge, that he is going to bring peace to the world. And we're entrusting ourselves to him. And so final judgment is important because it is integral to knowing how to love well in God's world. You have to believe in final judgment. Now, if final judgment is so important and it enables us to love people, why does the idea of it grind on us so much? You know, why when you turned in your bulletin and you saw that the sermon title was Final Judgment, you said, oh, this is going to be a good one, uh, Final Judgment. And uh, why are we so repulsed by the idea of uh, giving an account for our lives? And I think the reason is because when we think of, you know, atrocities that have happened in other parts of the world and, you know, the Nazis, we want to say, yes, God had better be a judge. And they, I want them to stand before God and give an account for the things that they've done. But when that examination turns on us and we say, this exam is for all people, I will have to stand and give an account, uh, we begin to tremble. 
And uh, if you t turn to page three in, in your bulletin, I want to read you, this is like a longer quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis gave a, uh, a sermon called The Weight of Glory. It's one of his most famous writings. And the whole sermon is beautiful, but this is uh, one of the most uh, powerful descriptions of the final judgment that, that is facing each one of us. And this is what he said. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or dis disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And what Lewis says is that to stand before God will either be the most terrifying thing that will ever happen to us or the most thrilling and deeply wonderful thing that will ever happen to us. And so one of the questions we have to face is not just why is final judgment important, but also how can we face final judgment with confidence? How can we walk into it so it is something we are thrilled by? We are eager for the day when we'll stand before God. And um, Jesus' answer comes in verse 32. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus says, this is what, this is what Jesus says, what's going to ultimately come down to is that final judgment is going to come down to what is our standing with Jesus? Did we acknowledge Jesus? If we acknowledge Jesus, then he's going to somehow be there at the final judgment and speak for us and say, he's with me. And uh, Father, the way you treat me, treat him. Or we deny Jesus and he, was gonna, and he would say, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, I never knew him. And what Jesus says is the question of whether we will have confidence approaching the final judgment is do we know Christ? Have we acknowledged him? Have we embraced him? Now, um, is Jesus our representative in the final judgment. Now, in order to explain this, let me just answer a couple of objections to this belief that the thing that gives you confidence in final judgment is Jesus Christ. The first thing is this. First objection. Why do I need Jesus? I'm a pretty good person. I'm, you know, I'm not the guy, I'm not the Nazi soldier shooting the guy in his own grave. That's not me. So at least I'm better than him. You know, why, why do I need Jesus? I'm a decent chap, right? Well, um, for one... The Bible tells us that no one is righteous, not one. 
And, uh, you know, when I first became a Christian, uh, there's a common thing, I don't know if you've heard this, that I heard many Christians say that, that um, unless you've lived a perfect life, you can't get into heaven. And, but one of the problems, I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before, but um, one of the problems with that statement is it gives you the impression that, it, let's say you were 97% good, 97%, but you weren't quite 100. You know, God is like, 97% is an F in heaven, you know. That's not, a, that's not good enough. You weren't 100%. And there's this idea that if I just make a few mistakes, then I'm going to lose my eternal life with God. But that's not the picture at all that the Bible gives. If we want to know what percentage we have, we just look at our last week. Look at our last 100 days. And say, the Bible says that we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So in the last week, how many of our days have been devoted to loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbors ourself? And we will find that we are a miserable failure at this. And what Christians believe, this is an important part of being a Christian, the beginning of being a Christian is that we look at all the evil in the world and we look at the 20th century and all its atrocities and say there is a darkness, there is an evil present in humanity. And what we say as Christians, this is what Daniel was talking about during the confession, we say that that darkness is not just something that's out there that bad guys do. That darkness is living in me. It's living in me as well. So if God is going to come and rid the world of all evil, if he's Braveheart who's going to get rid of all the, the bad guys... I'm a part of that darkness he has to get rid of. And so in, unless I come to those, the terms is, I cannot, on my own good works, on my own goodness, think that I can stand before God, that I have loved my neighbor as myself. And so that leads me to the question, um, uh, let me say this, sorry. We, have, we all have things in our lives that if they were made public, would ruin our reputations. All of us have things in our lives that if they were made public would ruin our reputations. And so in order to face God's judgment, you don't have to be perfect, but you have to acknowledge how imperfect you really are, how profoundly flawed, that there is a serious darkness inside of you, and, uh, that there, um, and therefore you need Jesus to take your sins and pay for them. And you need Jesus to represent you and defend you and to stand for you and to stand with you in the final judgment. Now, the second objection is this. It's not just, well, you know, maybe I'm a pretty good guy. The Bible says we need to look seriously at our hearts and see that there is a darkness in us. But the second objection is this. You know, this seems so narrow. To say that the only way I can stand in the judgment is if I have Jesus with me. Aren't there other ways to eternal life? But the answer to that question is you say, okay, maybe there are other ways. What are they? Jesus is saying, I'm willing to stand with you in the final judgment. I'm willing to take your sins, the wrath of God that you deserve, I'm willing to take it for you. And my righteousness, the delight that God has in me, I'm willing to give to you. Who else is offering to do that for you? I don't know anyone in history who has offered to take all of our sin for us and is, willing, is confident enough to stand before God to defend us and to stand with us. This is what Miroslav Volf says, the Croatian. God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. 
If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Jesus is inviting all people everywhere. I will stand with you. Embrace me. And when you have Jesus standing with you, when you go to final judgment, final judgment is no longer a terror because God loves Jesus. God delights in Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He was righteous. And he'll be with you. And you can go to final judgment with confidence. Okay? There's one last question that I need to answer as we uh, look at this passage. And I'll I'll try to be brief here. Um, uh, But... um, we, we see why final judgment is so important and we see how we can face it with confidence. But lastly, what does final judgment say about our lives right now? What does final judgment say about our lives right now? And um, one of the things that thinking about final judgment, why I think it's important for us to think about is because it forces us to ask the question, what am I living for? What am I living for? What's my life about? What is driving my life? What is the central love of my life? What is my supreme devotion? And when we begin to think about final judgment and standing for, before God and giving an account for our life, we begin to examine, how am I living right now? What am I giving my life to? Look at what Jesus says, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So Jesus says, believing the gospel is, is not is going to unsettle many things in our lives. Now, we know that this is not a real sword. He's not bringing war because look at, this is, look at what he says next. He doesn't talk about killing people. He talks about divisions in relationships. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what Jesus is saying, the reason he's talking about family relationships is he's speaking to people who live in a traditional culture. And in traditional cultures, your identity, who you are, is defined by your extended family. And so he says, whatever you're basing your identity on and who you are, unless you are willing to leave that and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And so this statement where he says, uh, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, could be replaced by any number of things. Whoever loves money more than me, whoever loves their job, whoever loves their children or their spouse or their hobbies more than me, whatever it is you're putting at the center of your life, our culture, we put all kinds of things, uh, success, our sexuality, whatever it is, we can take any of these things and say, this defines who I am. And Jesus says, if you put anything else at the core that drives your life, the center of your identity, it will fail you. Listen to those words. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Which is to say, whoever finds their life in their family, in their money, in their hobbies, in their job, in success, in approval of others, in their sexuality, whatever it is, Whoever finds their life in any of these things will lose their life. They will fail you. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so final judgment calls us to look at our life and say, what is at the center of who I am? Why am I getting up in the morning? And uh, what it will do as we look at that is it will call us to a life of love, loving the Lord our God, loving our neighbor, 
It will enable us to love our neighbor. It will give us confidence as we go to stand before God, as we think about these things and we take hold of Christ so that final judgment would not be a terror but would be a thrill for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, sobering truths that we read in your word and I pray that your spirit would guide each of us as we think through these matters and that you would lead us to the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Um, that We thank you that you welcome sinners uh, into your kingdom. And we pray that in Jesus um, we might find acceptance. And I pray for those here who have not embraced Christ, who have not acknowledged Christ, that your spirit would give them uh, the power to do that and to embrace his great love, that we may be transformed and that the thing that drives us, the thing that we live for, would be you.